Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham, and last week I began a podcast discussion on human sexuality and gender. Back in February, our church hosted a conference where I essentially delivered a Protestant version of Pope John Paul II's uh, Theology of the Body. Now, last week, I summarized all those lectures into an abridged podcast version, and now what I want to do is record a few podcasts where I go down some rabbit holes, I guess you could say. There were certain areas on sexuality and gender where I wanted to go deeper at the conference, but I couldn't because of time constraints, so I'm going to use my podcast to do that. And what I want to do in this one is help make sense of the cultural moment where we find ourselves. I tried to squeeze this into uh, one of my conference talks, which in hindsight was probably a mistake. It was too much to just speed through. So I'm going to take my time here and flesh it out a bit more. When Barack Obama first ran for president, his official position was that marriage was reserved for uh, one man and one woman. Now, whether he actually believed that is not the point. The point is he campaigned on it because it was the culturally tenable position at the time. Now, of course, that is a completely untenable view to hold. So in less than 15 years, the ethics of historic Christianity have gone from the mainstream position to an indefensible position. And of course, it hasn't stopped there. Post-Obergefell, the revolution has moved on from LGB to the more controversial T. Transgenderism is now what is before us, and one can easily argue that trans affirmation is more militant than gay affirmation. How is that possible? How in less than 15 years have we gone from traditional marriage to transgender militancy? That's what I want to make sense of here. And the answer is that this hasn't happened in 15 years. We are living in the uh, volcanic eruption of something that has been building for quite literally centuries. When cultures radically change so quickly, then you know there must be more to the story than the change itself. And that is certainly the case with the LGBTQ plus moment. Now, Christians are not ready for this moment. We, we desperately need to be equipped in how to navigate a society formed by the orthodoxy of secular sexuality, which is why our church hosted that conference. But the first step in that equipping is understanding. We can never faithfully engage something we do not understand, and that's my goal with this podcast. But first, let me preface these thoughts with a word to my friends uh, attracted to the same sex or both sexes or my friends with gender confusion, dysphoria, or perhaps an all-out transgender identity. If your story is represented in the LGBTQ acronym, whether unwanted or fully embraced, a quick word to you. What I have experienced as I have researched this cultural moment is a deeper love and empathy for your experience in this world you see, what I'm about to demonstrate is that sexuality and gender have gone from a part of who you are to your very core identity. And so when people disagree with this part of you in particular, it feels as if they are disagreeing with your very existence. That's not true, but I understand why it feels true. 
And if you will give this a listen with an open mind, I hope that at the very least you will understand why it feels that way, which in turn I hope will de-escalate the disagreements we may have. We may not come to the same conclusions on sexual ethics, but I do hope that at the very least we can be friends who disagree. But then there's the more sinister reason why this discussion is hard for you. And this has nothing to do with scholarship and everything to do with sinfulness. Not your sinfulness, but the sinfulness of those who follow Jesus. It is absolutely true what you have felt. Your sexuality has been treated with what can only be described as scorn and, quite frankly, disgust from Christians. It's true. We have fixated on you with a spirit of condemnation while ignoring what is condemnable in us, in our sexuality, and we are without excuse. I am very sorry for how Christians have treated you, and all I know to do is point you to a Savior who will not treat you like his followers have. And I just wanted you to hear that before I discuss the development of a story that I know is very personal for you. Okay, with that said, let's jump in here. Like I mentioned, in some ways, it makes no sense how rapidly our world has changed on this issue. But understood rightly, this moment is merely the inevitable outcome of historical developments a long time in the making. Now, what I'm going to share is not my own work. It, let, me, let me give intellectual credit here. I'm going to add to it a bit, but much of what I'm going to offer is in Carl Truman's massively important work, the rise and triumph of the modern self. I do have my critiques of Carl Truman, but what he has produced in this area is very, very significant for our time. Truman set out to research a simple question around a simple statement. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Truman wanted to understand how that statement could go from incoherent and self-evidently false to coherent and self-evidently true in the span of one generation, so much so that to deny it is now beyond the pale. What Truman's research shows is that you can't make sense of it if you focus on sexuality and gender. You have to understand something every single one of us shares, no matter our sexuality and gender, and it's the preeminence of self. That is to say, when considering gay identity or gender identity, it's not the word gay or gender we need to focus on, but the word identity itself. Let me do my best to help us understand. What had to happen for I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body to make sense is that the word feel in that sentence, I feel like a woman, had to usurp the word body in that sentence, trapped in a man's body. 20 years ago, if you go to a doctor and say, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would recognize that as an issue, but the issue would have been with your feelings, not your body. Thus, the answer is to work on the feelings to make them align with your body. Now, if you say that to a doctor, it's still an issue, but the issue is now with your body. Thus, the solution is to align the body to match the feelings. And what this tells us is that our metaphysical feelings now have greater authority than our physical realities. In fact, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body has become an obsolete statement. Now it's, 
I am a woman trapped in a man's body. I feel has been replaced with I am because what I feel is now who I am. And all of us, not just our LGBTQ plus friends, all of us now view ourselves this way. How did we get there? Truman argues it begins way before the sexual revolution with a much more significant revolution of self-identity. And the first key development that had to take place was the internalizing of the self. So historically, the answer to the question, who are you, was answered externally. I am the son of my parents. I am a member of this tribe. I am a farmer or whatever my trade may be. And of course, the most common answer historically is, I am what my religion says I am. That is to say, we defined ourselves by external identity markers. But in the 18th century, the answer, who are you, started turning inward. Truman specifically focuses on the philosophy of Rousseau, which Truman argues successfully moved our identity inward. Rousseau has this famous line, man is born free and is everywhere in chains. The idea is that your truest self is free, a free, autonomous, self-determining individual. But that individualism has been chained by external realities. Thus, I am born free, but everywhere in chains. So he reframes, Rousseau reframes these externals that used to define our identity as now a threat to our identity. Family societal norms, and certainly your religion are a threat to who you truly are because they are external authorities seeking to define you, standing in the way of your free, autonomous individualism and the quest to individually determine who you are. So with Rousseau, the answer to the question, who am I, is no longer a dialogue with external realities but an internal monologue of the self. And in this way, Rousseau's philosophy served as a bridge of sorts between the Enlightenment and Romanticism. The Enlightenment was the age of reason. Romanticism was the age of feelings. If you want to conceptualize the differences, Enlightenment is the foundation of our math and science studies. Romanticism is the foundation of our arts and humanities studies. Now, Romanticism was an important correction to the Enlightenment. Art, poetry, music, these things that speak to our emotions more so than our cognition, they saw a resurgence. And philosophers of Romanticism demonstrated that we are actually compelled by our desires as much, if not more, than our ideas. People don't change by well-reasoned argumentation. People change when their desires are captured. And this is actually a biblical concept, as demonstrated by Augustine long ago and uh, James K.A. Smith more recently. The problem, however, is when Romanticism's emphasis on feelings is disconnected from the Enlightenment's emphasis on reason, our feelings and our reason become disconnected, but they were never meant to be disconnected. But Romanticism gone awry did just that. 
So take Rousseau's philosophy of autonomous individualism. My identity is no longer defined externally, but internally. And then add to it the preeminence of romanticism's emotions. And what we now have is an internal emotional identity. Here's what I mean. The internal monologue is not a dialogue with your brain, but with your emotions. Who am I? I am my feelings. At this point, I think the philosopher Charles Taylor is more helpful than Carl Truman. Charles Taylor calls it the ethics of authenticity. The notion of authenticity has become paramount, hasn't it? When someone comes out of the proverbial closet, they say, I was living a lie, meaning I wasn't being authentic with who I am. I wasn't being true to myself. The spirit of our age is determined by authenticity. Find your authentic self. Be your authentic self. This is all the ethic of authenticity. Now, there are a couple more important steps before we get to sexual identity. But first, let me just pause here and show us that this is how all of us now view ourselves. So consider vocation. No longer do we ask, is this an important work that needs to be accomplished, and will it allow me to provide for my dependents? Now we ask, am I fulfilled in my calling? So you're defining job satisfaction by the internal dialogue of your emotional satisfaction. Consider marriage. No longer do we view marriage by the external vows that we once took, but by, am I fulfilled in marriage? How many divorces happen simply because someone is no longer authentically, emotionally happy in marriage? Consider our therapeutic culture. I'm a fan of therapy. My wife's a therapist and she's a good one. But she's good because she doesn't allow her clients to remain in an endless cycle of introspection, trying to find an elusive authenticity and contentment with self. But that is the essence of modern therapeutic theory. Find your authentic self. Consider your relationship with Jesus, Christian. No longer is your assurance of salvation defined by the external work of Jesus' cross and resurrection. Your assurance is based on an internal dialogue of whether you feel it. The Christian journey is a maddening, introspective journey trying to feel accepted and loved by God. To feel what the external Bible, historical creeds, sacramental practices tell you is already true. You can't believe these things are true unless you feel they are true. And the reason why I'm noting that before we get to the sexualizing of identity is only to say you share far more in common with our LGBTQ plus friends than you realize. The issue is not a gay identity. It's the issue of identity itself. And you, just like them, define your identity by internal emotional feelings, even if those internal feelings aren't sexualized. But let's move on. So if the romanticism of the 18th and 19th century defined us by our feelings, then I ask you, what is the most powerful feeling that we experience? John Paul is right. There is nothing more powerful within us than erotic love, as I explained in my last podcast. And this was the observation of a man you've heard before, Sigmund Freud. What Freud gives us 
is an internal, emotional, sexual identity. What he did was take romantic philosophy into the 21st century by giving it a scientific foundation. He was a neurologist by training, but his research led to a new scientific discipline of psychoanalysis. And to him, it all came down to erotic desire. At the end of the day, it's not just that we are defined by emotions and desires like the romantics say. We are defined specifically by our sexual emotions and desires. Let me quote directly from Freud, and you will hear the beginnings of where we now find ourselves. Quote, Man's discovery that sexual love affords him the strongest experience of satisfaction and in fact provides him with the prototype of all happiness must suggest to him that he should continue to, listen to this, seek the satisfaction of happiness in this life along the path of sexual relations and that he should make genital eroticism the central point of his life. There you have it. Man's discovery that sexual love affords him the strongest experiences and satisfactions means this, that we should seek the satisfaction of happiness in this life along the path of sexual relations and that we should make genital eroticism the central point of our life. That's us. We are a Freudian society. Even though many of his theories have been rejected, still his mark on the way we view ourselves remains. But one more thing had to happen before the philosophy could go mainstream. Historical norms had to be cast off. And just after Freud's death comes the swinging 60s and 70s that launched a sexual revolution. And how was that revolution spoken of? Liberation. Liberation from quite literally, millennium-old sexual boundaries. Our society is now sexually liberated. But what has been liberated? Not just your sexual experiences and enjoyment. What's been liberated is you. You are now free to be you. Because who are you? You are your sexual feelings. Your sexual identity. And so now we have an internal, emotional, sexual, liberated identity of the 21st century. But there's even more to the story that we need to appreciate. And here I turn again to Charles Taylor, not just his ethics of authenticity, but his work on secularization that I have discussed often in this podcast. The secular age sought to disenchant our world of transcendence and religion. But the problem with the secular project is that we cannot help but be religious. It's in our DNA. We are religious people. So what it did was rid us of traditional religions and practices, but not religion itself. So the vacuum of our religious instinct is filled with non-traditional forms of religious communities and practices. And this is what we have done with sexuality. It's not just an identity. It's a religion with a strict orthodoxy. The self-censorship everyone feels, and everyone feels it if they're willing to admit it, the self-censorship everyone feels on this topic is because we know disagreement is now religious blasphemy, which will be met 
with cultural discipline, perhaps even cultural excommunication. Okay, so here's where we find ourselves. And if you have family or friends who identify as LGBTQ+, I hope this will help you understand where they're coming from and give you empathy for why this part of them is so important to them. The reason is that they don't view it as a part of them, they view it as them. And chances are they do so with the same religious fervor as your religious devotion to Jesus. Therefore, on this singular issue, tolerance, respect, kindness, and love are not enough. You can't merely agree to disagree with civility. You must what? You must affirm. The tension we all face in this unprecedented age of sexual identity is the issue of affirmation. We must be affirming of any and all sexual and gender expressions and lifestyles. Why? Because my sexuality is now me. And therefore, to not affirm my sexuality is to not affirm me as a person. We can disagree, fiercely disagree, in any area and still be friends, the best of friends. But you can't disagree with me in this one area, because to do so is to disagree with my core identity. You're not disapproving of my opinion or even my actions. You're disapproving of my very existence. So please listen to me, my Christian friends in particular. You are not going to win any argument. You are arguing against three centuries of cultural developments, and you're not going to win that argument. Logic and reason have no sway in the moment we find ourselves. All of this stuff holds so much weight in our culture that bodies and pronouns are being altered to accommodate it. So I promise your arguments won't work. There is one and only one way to engage this cultural moment. You're going to have to tell a better story. And that is the story I sought to tell in my previous podcast in the conference. The days of debate are over. Now what is left is for Christian communities to proclaim and more importantly to enact a theology of the body. And as this cultural moment implodes, and make no mistake, it will. This is unsustainable. The triumph of the modern self is but a momentary triumph. The day will come, we may be generations away, But the day will come when this falls apart. And when it does, may the doors of Christian communities be wide open to receive those whose sexual and gender identities have failed them. May they find welcome in our communities and may they find a better story waiting for them. All right, thanks for listening. Uh, if this content has been helpful, I'd love for you to take time to give it a five-star rating and even better, write a review. And we will be back soon for another episode of Every Square Inch. <laughs>